This is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So there are some true constants in the universe. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. The value of gravity is constant regardless of how far away we are when we observe it. And no one will ever be happy with education standards reform. Okay, I kind of made that last one up, but sometimes it does feel like every time people reform education standards, just a few years later, we feel the need to do it again. But maybe that's because our focus has been too narrow and our standards haven't included the right things. That's what Dr. Zakani Zusho, Revti Kumar, and Rhonda Bondi have argued in a new article in Educational Psychologist. They've got a new paradigm for standards-based reform, and I can't wait for you to hear what they have to say about it today. Akane Zusho is a professor in the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Her award-winning research focuses on empowering students, teachers, and leaders to transform learning environments so that all feel an enduring sense of belonging and competence to build deep and flexible understandings and to pursue structural change. To that end, she has written over 50 articles on the intersection of culture, achievement motivation, and self-regulated learning and has conducted numerous studies exploring the relation of cultural, cognitive, and motivational processes to learning. She's a former associate editor of the American Educational Research Journal and currently serves on the editorial boards of Educational Psychologist and Contemporary Educational Psychology. In 2012, she received the American Psychological Association's Division 15 Richard E. Snow Early Contributions Award for her work. Revti Kumar is a distinguished university professor of educational psychology at the University of Toledo. She earned a PhD in Education and Psychology from the Combined Program in Education and Psychology at the University of Michigan. She is a Fulbright Specialist Scholar, Fellow of the American Psychological Association, Provost Faculty Fellow, and recipient of the University Outstanding Faculty Research and Scholarship Award. She is currently serving as Associate Editor for Contemporary Educational Psychology and is on the Editorial Board of Educational Psychologist. She was a recipient of a Spencer Foundation major grant and is co-principal investigator on three grants funded by the National Science Foundation. Over the past 25 years, her research has focused on issues of diversity, equity, culturally responsive teaching from an educational psychology perspective, and exploring how schools, administrators, and teachers can promote an environment in which all students flourish. Rhonda Bondi is an associate professor in special education at Hunter College and the director of the Hunter College Learning Lab. Rhonda spent over 20 years in urban public schools as both a special and general educator. Her research explores teaching that it creates inclusive cultures where all learners thrive. With Akane, she is a co-author of the textbook, Differentiated Instruction Made Practical. Today, we're talking about their 2023 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, Transforming Fear into Rigor, Love, Freedom, and Joy, A New Paradigm of Standards-Based Reform. And that article is part of a special issue of Educational Psychologist on policy-oriented research. So thank you all for talking to me today, and thanks so much for writing such a great article. So Akane, let's start with you. What inspired you to write this manuscript, and what was your experience writing it? Wow. (laughs) So what inspired us? Well, first of all, I believe that Raithi was the one that got the original invitation from Sharon to to contribute to the special issue. But in terms of my own personal inspiration, I think a lot of my interest really came from some of the work that I was doing at Fordham in an administrative role as interim dean. And that experience, as challenging as it was, really made me think mm-hmm about policy. And also, Mm -hmm. I think, gave me the feeling that I could say something about it, that I need Mm -hmm. to say something about it. So, you know, that was my personal inspiration. 
In terms of the experience writing it, for me, it was probably one of the most challenging things I've done recently, in large part because you know, we weren't entirely sure what we meant by policy. And I think our paper really did go through many iterations. And I will be the first to admit that the final draft was not anywhere close to what we initially submitted. (laughs) But it was rewarding in the way that it allowed us to read literatures that we normally wouldn't necessarily have read. Mm -hmm. Sharon Nichols, who is the guest editor of the special issue, really challenged us to to dive deep into history. And I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful for that because that's something that I never would have done. And also, you know, just being surrounded by friends and colleagues that that push you and challenge you, I think, made writing this article a lot of fun, too. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. And it's not at all uncommon for articles in educational psychologists to kind of evolve over the course of some revisions. That's often, I think, a good thing. And you mentioned this history of school reform that you did, which I thought was really helpful. It gave me a lot to think about. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, can you give us a sense of what you learned from that history and how it helped you conceptualize the new paradigm for standards that you created? Yeah, it really was an important part of our process for sure, because, you know, having lived through NCLB, we didn't really know that much about, you know, how everything before that came to be and why NCLB happened. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we learned is that, you know, this, the history of the standards really goes all the way back to the progressive era. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting for me to realize that in terms of, you know, who was involved in crafting the standards, oftentimes it was businessmen <laughs> or mm-hmm. politicians, not necessarily educational psychologists who, you know, who were active in the conversations. And you know, perhaps because of who was playing a central role, there seemed to be an emphasis on this idea of efficiency, this idea Mm -hmm. of prioritizing the economic agenda, this idea of hierarchy and ensuring that there was a system in place where there was like a manager, right, Mm -hmm. who was uh, often male, often white, managing teachers. And Bobbitt, I think he was one of the key historical figures in the progressive Mm -hmm. era. He often referred to schools as factories and the superintendents and principals as, you know, the the foremen and teachers Mm -hmm. as sort of the workers. Um, So, there was really this factory model in place. And that's yeah. really was sort of the foundation of the standards movement. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we grew to appreciate based on this historical review is that the standards movement prioritizes the economic agenda. It is mm-hmm. really trying to establish goals that will hopefully allow students while teachers to teach students to know certain things and do certain things in order for them to be able to go to college and get a good job. It also emphasizes rigor and high standards above everything else. And ultimately, what we thought was that that was a way too narrow way of looking at the purposes of schooling and that we really needed to sort of reimagine standards so that it's much more inclusive 
that it actually spurred a more humanistic, culturally responsive and asset-based approach to framing policies. Mm -hmm. And right now, we don't think those things are in place just yet. And so we were hoping with our article that we would, you know, provide sort of a blueprint for crafting the next generation of standards-based reform, sort of a North Star, if you will, that would be easily understandable by everyone and that would ensure that standards don't overly emphasize rigor, but Mm -hmm. that it would balance rigor with love and that would help orient students, teachers, and leaders to pursue freedom and joy. Mm -hmm. And the paper has this wonderful figure where you kind of juxtapose the history of standards reform with the history of research on learning, and you kind of show how they diverge and they continue to diverge. And I really encourage our listeners to, to check out your paper for just the history and that figure alone, I think is really informative then, let alone all the great stuff that you have after that. And one of the things that you already mentioned, and I think is really interesting, is how it may surprise some people to hear that you kept rigor as one of the key parts of your North Star for standards reform. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, your thinking behind rigor and how you're thinking about rigor within the new conceptualization you have. Rifti, is that something that you can talk to us a little bit about? Sure. So first, let me just say that I agree with everything that Akhani has just said. I would just like to add that this was challenging. Mm -hmm and to think about policies. And even as we write, uh, you know, all these things about motivation and things, uh, motivation, self-regulated learning, and all these things that we talk about, how does it translate into policy? Mm-hmm. So, well, when I was first asked, I was a little nervous. I said, I have never written anything on policy. And then, <laughs> of course, we three had worked together on an earlier paper and it has been, it had been so much fun I thought uh, Akhani, at that time, she was in an administrative position too. So I thought she might be in a better position to talk about this than I am. But as we went along, it was just the most amazing experience. And you asked me, you know, why we included rigor. Mm-hmm. As Akhani had mentioned earlier, we started somewhere before and then we went through many iterations So the first time around, we actually looked at uh, state standards for teachers Mm -hmm. and what are the standards and how does that translate into student learning outcomes? Every standard across all the states, they do talk about culturally responsive education. But what exactly does that mean? And then when you look at those standards, every one of those standards do emphasize rigor and that is important. Mm-hmm. But then how do we get beyond this and what does being culturally responsive actually mean? I think that was the starting point for me. And uh, and in the process of reading all the black scholars work that we read, Bell Hooks, Bettina Love, Goldie Muhammad, we read their work. And every one of those, they talk about the joy of learning, the love of learning and empowerment. And they talk about rigor as well. So how do we promote rigor? It is through teaching, through love, through empowering students and creating this joy for learning, joy for being in the learning context. And so that's when I think we eventually landed on this paradigm where we thought, yes, we all talk about achievement as though it is the end goal. No, it, that is not the end goal. It is holistic development. It is promoting 
rigor and in the context of a lot of love, empowerment and joy. So that's how we came up with that paradigm. I can add two things. Great. I think one of the most important arguments of the paper is this idea of the whole person. So we're not just thinking about when we look at the history, we see the behaviorist movement, we see cognition. But what we don't see practice today is this idea of the emotions, the feeling, the whole person, and in context. So I think the mm-hmm. whole person in context is a very important part that emerged in our work through the paper. And the other thing about rigor, I think one of the great things with our critique of the current standards is that we didn't take away rigor, but instead we added a more full picture by thinking about the whole person in context. Great. Rhonda, that was really helpful. And I love how the North Star kind of has these four components, rigor, love, freedom, and joy. I would love for our listeners to hear a little bit about each of them. So we have rigor and the next one is love. And so, Akane, do you want to talk a little bit about the what love is in this paradigm and its role kind of in the way you think about standards reform? Yeah. So I think Rathi mentioned this before, but we read a lot before starting to write this paper. And we read outside of, you know, Journal of Ed Psych, even educational psychologists. I think we really wanted to look into what scholars, particularly those who are doing more work in sort of critical race theory and culturally responsive and sustaining education, were saying about what schools and at the system should be. And in reading that work, particularly the work of Bettina Love, Goldie Muhammad, you see this recurring theme of love pop up. Of course, bell hooks, right? Sure. And what was interesting to me was that even though we see love talk about all the time, and actually they often talk about schools not being a place of love for students of color, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily see it that much in the literature, at mm-hmm. least with that word. What we do see is, you know, research on caring, of course, research on belonging, and and that's some of the work that we review in that section. But Mm -hmm. we added to that this issue of trust. I think a lot of the research in ed leadership talks about how trust is important and how certain Mm -hmm. students don't trust the system, don't trust their teachers, so they're not feeling that sense of love. The other thing that we talk about in that section is knowledge, which may seem weird to, (laughs) to put in a section on love, but we argue based on Bell Hook's definition of love is about how knowing students, knowing who exactly they are is an important part of love. And so again, I think the research generally suggests that we often don't have those close experiences with certain groups of students, which leads us to not fully understand and appreciate them. And so that's kind of what we're talking about in that section on love. That explanation of love is very helpful, and I really think it's important to include those ideas of trust and knowledge in there. That's just a much richer and more productive idea of love, at least for me, um, than I've thought about in the past. So, Rafi, the next aspect of the model is freedom. And so can you talk to us about what freedom means in this particular paradigm and the role it plays? So the, when we talk about the meaning of freedom, now that's not a word that's generally used in educational psychology. Mm -hmm. We like to talk about autonomy. We like to talk about agency, agency of the self and and so forth. But again, if you look at the work of black scholars, for example, Muhammad, she has defined the criticality, 
criticality is an aspect of freedom and it is this capacity that we have to develop to read write think mm-hmm. in ways that we understand what is power what is privilege what is social justice and oppression and what we can do to enhance uh, people's lives through developing a sense of freedom and empowerment and i think mm-hmm. in that sense it goes beyond what social cognitive theorists talk about because every one of our motivational theories speaks to agency in some form or fashion mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that that is not important it is and we can start cultivating the sense of empowerment through providing choices through doing all these things that we do in the classroom but i think it is absolutely important that when we talk about policies we always talk about giving students choices it's more yeah. than that it is right. how do you help them so that they are always thinking in a critical manner and critical mm-hmm. i'm not using it in the same usual sense but think about it in terms of criticality what can mm-hmm. i do how can i think so that i don't feel burdened by all the other things that surround me but i can think freely not sure if i'm being very clear with that but it's really the mm-hmm. sense of particularly for black students of color it is to go beyond what they are taught in school link it with the realities and lived experiences of their lives and see how they can really empower themselves the community and society so it is in that sense that we are talking about freedom and empowerment and, and it is such an expansive idea of freedom and i thought you illustrated it well you know there's these theories that say we provide students choice and that's what you need to do to give them autonomy but a criticality perspective says you also have to provide them with a structure in which they can be more free and freedom really requires that students have the knowledge skills and uh freedom to be critical of those structures to have that kind of criticality so i'm really glad that you expanded the idea of criticality beyond what people think of in standards reform like critical thinking it's not that it's more than that it's different i just wanted to add one more thing about freedom mm-hmm. because it is a, like you said it is very expansive as a as a construct so how do we integrate it into policies how do we say that we promote freedom what mm-hmm. what will it mean in terms of a policy statement what will it mean in the context of teaching in a classroom i think that is something that we really need to think about Mm-hmm. and so the reason i wanted to talk about that was this really leads us to think about how do i promote open mindedness in the classroom and more mm-hmm. recently i've been thinking about how do you promote intellectual diligence humility and uh, all you know those intellectual virtues that can actually promote this kind of free freedom at the individual level and at the systemic level and i think that is an important consideration mm-hmm. an important part of the freedom is the feeling of open-mindedness being able to tinker make mistakes try out and explore so these constructs have to intersect because you have to feel the trust and the love in order to create an environment where an individual would be able to feel free to do the types of thinking that we're describing Yeah, I I really like that and that, that is it's helpful to think about what is necessary to do the kind of work that you're describing. So, Rithi, let's let's talk about joy, which is the fourth point of your North Star. Can you talk to us about what joy is and what it does in your standards reform model? Well, 
I have to say, I never knew as much about joy as I know now. <laughs> there is so much literature on joy that, that I read. And it's starting from Aristotle, actually, where he talks about authentic happiness. And then there's a lot of work in theology, too, that really speaks to happiness mm -hmm. and joy. And they distinguish between joy and happiness. And I thought it was, that was really important. And uh, how can we promote this kind of joy? And I won't go into the details of the different kinds of joys, but this also led me into some of the self-determination work done in self-determination theory, mm -hmm. where, you know, they talk about eudaimonic happiness. And so I went deeper into what does that mean? And, and, and it really fits in with all the other things that we talk about, because it is an enduring and deep sense of well-being. And how do we attain that sense of well-being is when we are really engaged in meaningful relationships, in meaningful learning, personal growth, when we are contributing to the community. So that kind of joy that comes, it's an inner joy. It is, it mm -hmm. is as compared to, you know, for example, you know, you succeed in doing something or you get a, get a reward and you feel happy. It's, it isn't that. But how do you promote the sort of sustained joy among mm -hmm. students? So when I say sustained joy, it's not that easy to achieve, at least at this point in time, that's that's how I feel. But it is something mm -hmm. that we can really create a classroom environment where we can enable students to experience the joy, joy of learning, joy of relationship with their peers. And this really mm -hmm. took me into this whole notion of intergroup relationships. What does that mean and how do we promote that kind of joy? So I think it is that enduring joy. And one thing that I would like to add is that a lot of Black scholars, again, they talk about joy and they talk about joy and the joy that they experience because of their race and not in spite of their race. And mm -hmm. the joy that comes about when students, regardless of race, I would say, all students are able to find their voice and actually understand and develop a meaningful identity that is linked with all the things that they are doing. And how can we do that in school? How can we strive to promote this kind of joy among students? I think it is more internal, it is intrinsic, and all the motivational theories, again, talk about it, intrinsic motivation or, sub, mm -hmm. you know, subjective values or what we do. And so I think in that sense, joy is very, very essential, be it in intergroup relationships or in the process of learning. And every Black scholar you read, that's one thing they talk about. And what you illustrated so well was that these ideas that, you know, readers of educational psychologists might not have seen terms like, you know, joy, freedom as much in the journal as we might have hoped. But, you know, those terms, which they might not be as familiar with, really do connect so well to the existing educational psychology literature, and you illustrate that throughout. And they bring in, again, as you do so well, all these other ideas that people may be less familiar with, maybe not, but maybe less familiar with, from black scholars and other scholars who really illustrate, like your point about black scholars emphasizing that black people can feel joy because of their race. That's a really important point, and I'm so glad that you've illustrated so well 
in the paradigm and in the article. And so I, I really encourage our listeners to read carefully all the different aspects of the North Star. All of you did an expert job in weaving new ideas with existing educational psychology ideas in ways that made a lot of sense. So, you know, you've got this North Star paradigm, and I think many educational psychologists might read it and then wonder, kind of like, what can I do with this to shape policy? What role can I play? What thoughts do you have about that? Yeah, I think there are so many things educational psychologists can do, right, to be a part of this policy conversation. Frankly, there is a lot of research that still needs to be done in this area. One mm. of the things that we notice is that perhaps our field has also internalized this economic agenda and, you know, sort mm -hmm. of this focus on achievement being the outcome, because most of our studies really do have achievement or some version of that as our dependent variable a lot of times. And we don't necessarily mm -hmm. have freedom, joy, love as mm -hmm. equally important outcomes. And so right. we would welcome studies that really focus on that and also focus on sort of the intersections between all of these outcomes, right, and how they relate to each other. That is definitely mm -hmm. one thing we can do. Related to that, you know, we're supposedly great at measurement, and I think we need better <laughs> measures of love, mm -hmm. of joy, of rigor, I would add, of freedom. And so that is certainly something that educational psychologists know how to do and can really contribute. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, on a personal level, I also feel like everyone you know, varies in terms of how much they can take on leadership positions. But, you know, when we did the historical review, it became apparent that there are certain people whose voices are heard more than others. And mm -hmm. I personally would like to see educational psychologists play a bigger role in policy conversations and getting involved. And yeah. that may be through mm -hmm. Division 15. And I know Division 15 has been doing a lot in this regard. Or mm -hmm. it could be through taking on more leadership positions within one's institution. You know, when I was in the role of interim dean, you do interface with the state departments of education. So that could also be one way in which you could add to the conversation. So mm -hmm. There's, there's multiple things I think we can all do to get involved. I would just add for educational psychologists to collaborate with educators. Mm. I think our papers and our collaboration over the years really shows the productivity for both the field of teacher education and educational psychologists when we work interdisciplinary mm -hmm. and not only just to have teachers be subjects in research studies, but actually collaborators with educational psychologists to create new ways of thinking about teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And just piggybacking on what uh, Ronta just said, I think we should also play a really active role in how we shape teacher education programs, mm -hmm. how we emphasize these different standards in addition to achievement, particularly because most pre-service teachers are thinking about, oh, and I have to, you know, they're they are concerned about standardized tests and how they would deal with it. And actually, Having them reframe what their role is and what the standard should be is, I think, important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of talking to aspiring teachers and existing teachers and administrators and helping them see that you can expand beyond just to focus on achievement and their ideas of rigor, the ones that are you know kind of empowering, can be retained. But then the love, freedom, and joy are important additional things that uh, they're, they're co-equal. And when you focus on all of them, just, just think about what your students will be able to do 
when they go out into the world. So I, I really like this new paradigm for standards-based reform, and I, I hope it gets taken up, and that will require kind of reaching out to policymakers and teachers, et cetera. So thank you for giving us all a great paradigm and a, a number of different ways to begin thinking about how to do that work. So your, your article ends in a poem. Can you talk to me a little bit about that choice and what that means to you? That poem was written by the Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore, and it means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And it captures it captures the essence of everything that we are saying in this article. Mm-hmm. It talks about the mind being without fear, you know, mm-hmm. and everything. How do we how do we enhance our knowledge? How do we think in you know with great clarity and so forth? And so, yeah, it meant a lot to me that we were able to include that poem there. So thank you. Mm-hmm. As we think about your article, it, it's such an important article. I suspect our listeners are, are wondering, like, gosh, do they have any tips or tricks for me if I was going to write an article myself? So as you think back upon the process of writing this article for educational psychologists, any advice you'd like to share or, or wisdom you'd like to pass on? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's um, wisdom per se, because I believe this is probably my third art publication in educational psychology, at least a major one. Mm -hmm. And every time I am challenged. So I guess my advice would be to to think of this as a journey and one that will ultimately make you a better researcher. Mm -hmm. I've never regretted writing for educational psychologists, despite, Mm -hmm. you know, along the way, of course, we were challenged and there were times (laughs) of frustration, but but I've always felt supported by the editors and the reviewers and they ultimately helped us make our points more clearly and, you know, made us better researchers. So I would say embrace it. Just know that it is difficult and sometimes does require major revisions and kind of need to be okay with that and letting go of certain ideas and, you know, bringing in (laughs) other ones. That certainly happened with this particular article a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know that's, you know, sometimes hard to do. But in the end, just trust that it will be a much better piece. And I personally always have enjoyed writing for educational psychologists. I would add that I've also always enjoyed the experience. And every piece that I have written for the educational psychologists, it has been the amount of feedback I have received, the amount of support from all the editors that I've received Every time it has been, like Akhani said, yes, it's challenging and it is a journey. It's going to take time and you've got to be willing to put in the time and the effort. But in the process, you learn so much more. And it's always been an empowering experience for me as well. Mm-hmm. Can I just add, writing for educational psychologists, I think it's the best example, at least personally, of when I experienced rigor, <laughs> love, freedom, and joy. And <laughs> so, good. you know, that's that's essentially what we were trying to say. Like those kinds of experiences is what our framework is all about. And so, you know, I would certainly recommend other scholars trying it. And hopefully they too will experience all those things in, in writing these articles. Great. Some advice that I would offer for educational psychologists writing for EP is to think about including a historical study in the article and really thinking about the historical roots Mm -hmm. of the variables and the research question and the context that you're studying Mm. because the past shapes the present and is playing a role in the present. Mm -hmm. And I think making that explicit and visible within the research is an important thing that we did in this article. Absolutely. That's great advice for sure. 
So in addition, our listeners always want to hear what you're working on that's exciting you. So Rhonda, how about we start with you? What's currently on your plate that you're really excited about? I'm studying teacher learning through new technologies. So I built an artificial intelligence powered classroom and I'm looking at teacher-student interaction as a wonderful opportunity for teachers to, in a virtual classroom, take their time and really think about the intention behind their language and their interaction with students Mm -hmm. when they're trying to promote learning Mm -hmm. to really take time and think about that and let the AI give them some feedback on Mm -hmm. their language. Mm -hmm. And then to also think about the impact their language has on the avatar student when it's not a real student, you know, and you can really try things out and explore. And I think it gives teachers a sense of freedom in terms of developing themselves as a professional So I've been exploring that. And the other thing I've been exploring is inviting teachers to use this framework to have conversations with their students to Mm -hmm. establish community agreements Mm -hmm. and to gain feedback from their students on how their students are feeling about their learning, both as a process and their feeling as a product of their learning at school. And it's been fascinating to watch students be very surprised when the teacher asks them (laughs) if they're experiencing love at school. (laughs) And of course, they think of romance, you know, in (laughs) adolescence right away. And, you know, we've been exploring those responses. And Raytheon Akani and I were looking at some last week, and we noticed that when students are thinking about joy, they're thinking much more about happiness. Mm -hmm. And they're not really thinking about a sense of peace or a sense of well-being Mm -hmm. or being in flow as experiences that they have had or expect to have in their schooling. So I think that the North Star has incredible potential for teacher-student interaction. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited for, I think this is a, a time where teachers and students are really looking for things to give them direction and purpose. Mm-hmm. And the North Star is simple and clear and seems to promote incredibly productive conversations and meaningful conversations with teachers and students. That's amazing. I love that. That sounds great. What a wonderful outcome of all your hard work. I'm tempted to ask you what happens when you ask the AI about love in a classroom, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Next one. Yeah. Good. Write a paper on that and then we'll talk about it. Uh, <laughs> really, what about you? What are you working on? I think reading all these things has taken me down a path. Again, I've gotten into a lot of literature and philosophy. Mm. I'm really immersed in that philosophical literature on epistemic justice and injustice and Mm -hmm. what is epistemic trust and what does it mean in a teaching learning context and what does it mean for even faculty? Does everyone have an equal amount of epistemic trust? How do we promote that? And what does it mean for both researchers and the research and what should educational psychologists be doing? That's one direction that I have been going and, and of course I have I've been continuing my work with engineering students, looking at uh, issues of racial equity. We have been conducting some interviews where we are looking at how do they understand it and what does it mean and how can Mm -hmm. we bring about this joy of learning and a sense of purpose for these students. Mm -hmm. We're looking specifically at minoritized students. And the one that is something I really, really want to do is, again, we've talked so much about these things. So I want to see how I actually go into schools and work with teachers and with students 
to promote these sort of issues? How do we cultivate open-mindedness? So uh, that is something that I really hope to work on. Mm, yeah, fascinating. And engineering students, what a great population to work with, too. So uh, Akane, what about you? What are you working on lately? So I think, you know, writing this article and some of my more recent experiences have really made me not want to be a hypocrite <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, want to do research that really is about structural change okay. and changing policies. And, you know, so one of the things I'm doing right now is trying to find ways to teach my doctoral students better in terms of their stats training. I mm, really yeah. am trying to better incorporate quant crit in my classes. And one oh, of the things cool. that we're doing as mm -hmm. part of that is collaborating with some community partners, including a congressman's office related to the census. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how much people know about this, but the race and ethnicity question on the census is likely to change. Mm -hmm. And that change is going to have both positive and negative impacts on certain communities, in particular, at least in New York City, the Hispanic community. A lot of times what we're seeing is that they don't know how to answer those questions. And mm so I, along with my students, along with my community partners, are trying to to delve more deeply into this question and to think about what the ramifications are. So that's one of the things I'm doing. The other thing I'm also doing is trying to understand sort of the policies that are in place mm -hmm. that help to support teacher and leader development within the New York City public school system. And I'm trying to change some of the policies that they have that I think are intention. And so it's not research, but it's more, I guess, on the activism side. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's giving me a better appreciation of how important policies are and what we need to do to change them in order to serve our students and also our teachers and leaders. Really sounds like you're walking the walk, which is fantastic. Trying to. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So that seems like a, a good place to wrap it up for today. I want to thank you all so much for talking to me. I really encourage our listeners to check out your article entitled Transforming Fear into Rigor, Love, Freedom, and Joy, A New Paradigm of Standards-Based Reform. And it's in the 2023 Special Issue of Educational Psychologist on Policy-Oriented Research, Enhancing the Relevancy of Educational Psychology to Policy. And finally, listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to check out our other episodes on your favorite podcast app, and please consider rating and reviewing us. You can also go to our APA Division 15 website that has all the podcasts that are linked in the publications section. Thanks again so much for listening. Mm -hmm.